I'm going to use, uh, I've, I've taught some of this stuff before. We just finished going through what the Bible refers to, or what we refer to nowadays as the Ten Commandments. Last week we dealt with um, the purpose of the law. Why did God give it? It was never intended, and this is something we need to keep in mind and understand. The law that God gives in Scripture was never intended as a standard that man was to meet for the purpose of redemption. It was simply given to show us our shortcomings and how uh, we have a holy God that we can never meet His standard of. We found that in Romans chapter 3 and verses 21, 22, and 23. And it shows how uh, man cannot achieve the standard that God has set. And so the law is given as a schoolmaster, as our tutor. It's, it teaches us uh, the character of God, the holy character of God. It uh, is something that we ought to strive for. And so even though we understand its purpose is to show us that we cannot attain it, it does tell us the nature of God. And it is what we ought to be striving for. Paul said, in the book of Philippians, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so uh, we look to the law as our schoolmaster to show us our need of a Savior, and I'm thankful for that. And then once we're saved, we look to it as knowing and understanding the character of God so that we know best how to live in order to please Him. And so it's, it's not uh, negated. Christ did not come, and we saw that last week as we studied a little bit in the New Testament in the book of Matthew, that Christ did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And He was the fulfillment of it. He was the only one, by the way, that could meet it in all aspects. Uh, there's not a man alive, living or dead, uh, or man that is living or dead, that has ever been able to attain perfection by the law other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so He fulfills the law. Uh, he meets the requirements to satisfy the just demand of a holy God with the, regards to the penalty for sin. And then he comes to this earth, according to Philippians chapter number 2, takes upon him the form of a man, and is made in the likeness of a man. He takes our sin on his own body, and is crucified. It's interesting that our study in Exodus just timed perfectly with our Easter Sunday, and how all of this ties together. And I want to spend a little bit of time sharing uh, some notes and some uh, lesson that I've taught pieces and parts of this over the years. Uh, in our church, it, but once here, I, I know at least once here, maybe twice here, and uh, I know down in Florida, uh, regarding uh, some of the things that God did for us and uh, how it all ties together. And I love, uh, as we look to uh, Scripture, all the different things that God uses in the Old Testament uh, to picture and to illustrate the things that were done in the New Testament. Uh, for instance, um, when the children of Israel were traveling through the, uh, the wilderness, uh, here in just a few chapters, God has them build um, a tabernacle that would move around with them. And uh, the Ark of the Covenant is to reside in a place of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And on that uh, was the mercy seat uh, that when they would sacrifice a, a sacrifice picturing atonement for sin, they would take that blood and take it into the Holy of Holies, and they would sprinkle that on the a mercy seat in the tabernacle. Later on, Solomon builds a permanent structure called the temple. Uh, it's destroyed after a number of years, and they build a second temple. And again, they very much modeled after the same type of format of the tabernacle, having a Holy of Holies, having a place where the high priest would go in and offer atonement for man. 
<coughs> all of those things were pictures on this earth of things that were in heaven. There is a mercy seat in heaven. Uh, the Bible talks about it in the book of Hebrews that Jesus uh, went up there and he uh, sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat and he went into the temple that was not made with hands. It was not made with men's hands. And uh, so we understand that God gives a lot of things on this earth that help us to understand or illustrate spiritual things, things that are in heaven, things that are of a spiritual nature. One of the things that God has used down through history has been the issue of a covenant. And we're going to take a few moments this morning to deal with the idea of the covenant because it ties so well into the death and burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, I want to just mention this, that our Bible is divided into two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And one of them dealing with the covenants that were made and the primary covenant that was made with Abraham prior to Calvary, and then the New Testament being the, the new covenant that was made and established according to the book of Hebrews once Christ died on the cross. Uh, there were several uh, uh, covenants throughout the Old Testament. Um, there was the, Abra- uh, the, the covenant God made with Adam. There was a, a covenant that God made with uh, Noah uh, that he would not destroy the world again. Uh, with the flood, there was a covenant that God made with Abraham and uh, expressing that he was going to uh, uh, be uh, the, the father of his chosen people and through him uh, would come the promise of the Messiah. Uh, there was a covenant that was made with Moses. There was a covenant that was made uh, with David. And uh, God establishes these covenants and uh, was something that uh, was very, very important in the Old Testament times. Our, the, the closest that I can say that we have today, uh, the equivalent of Old Testament covenant, would be a contract uh, that we would maybe sign that was legally binding. But to be real frank with you, a covenant went even beyond that. Um, a covenant was something that, uh, when it was made, uh, was not to be broken. It was ironclad. Um, in fact, many of the covenants, not all of them, but many of the covenants were given uh, under the agreement that if the covenant was broken, it would mean the forfeiture of your life. And so, I mean, this is how seriously the covenants were taken. And so God establishes some of these. And uh, I want us to look at them. We're going to look at some of the things in Scripture that tells us a little bit about uh, these covenants that God gives or, or that God makes. And um, there's basically seven or so steps of making covenant. Uh, not every covenant involved every step, but uh, many of the covenants would involve some or all of these steps. And God even used the same ones in dealing with man on these issues. If you have your Bibles handy, turn to Genesis chapter number 15. Genesis chapter number 15. And uh, the reason we're dealing with this this morning is because last week we finished up the law. We spoke about the fact that, uh, that last week we understood that we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. And the reason for that, and we're going to see the t- how it ties together here, the reason for that is because of the establishment of the new covenant. And we're going to see how the new covenant, how Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those things and all those requirements on our behalf which is an amazing thought to think about. But uh, let's look at some of the historical uh, things regarding covenant. In Genesis chapter number 15, we're going to begin in verse number 7. And God is speaking to Abram here. 
And uh, notice at this time his name is Abram and not Abraham. And keep that in mind. And verse number 7, he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. So God gives Abraham a promise. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And, and we read verse number 8, and to be honest with you, uh, I think sometimes we read Scripture and we don't, we don't stop to think of the impact of what's being said. But when I read verse number 8, I think, who in the world does Abraham think he is? Questioning God. Notice what he says here. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? How often do you and I hear, uh, hear or see or read a promise that God has given to us, and then we doubt that promise? We say, Lord, how do we know that? Because we are so used to man making promise and breaking it, aren't we? Men always break their covenant. Men always break their promises to some degree. And, and because we're so cynical because of how other men treat us, oftentimes, whether we like to admit it or not, we don't take God at His word, do we? And so Abraham questions God. He's like, God, how shall I know that this is really going to happen? You know, you're telling me something, and I, you know, that may be, but how do I know? And, you know, before we get too critical of Abraham, we all do that in some aspect of our lives, don't we? There are times that we don't trust God at His word. We find ourselves worrying about things that we should not be worrying about. We find ourselves fretting and we find ourselves uh, struggling and dealing with problems that we really should give to God and let Him handle them. And, and we don't take Him always at His word. So Abraham is this way in verse number 8. And he says, in verse number 9, And he said unto him, this is God speaking to Abraham, Take me an heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid these, each piece one against the other. So he, he divided them in the middle and laid them uh, the two halves out. Now, the only things he did not do were the birds. He did not divide them in verse number 10. <clears throat> now, notice in verse number 11. So Abraham understands what God is doing here. At this point, in, Abraham knows a covenant is getting ready to be made. This is, this is the steps of Old Testament covenant. Uh, historically, this had already been done in the past and these were things that, that Abraham understood what God was doing here. So he lays them out, and notice what it says here in verse number 11. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And when the sun was going down... Now, understand, Abraham did what God told him to do. He took these animals, he divides them, and lays them out. And then he waits. Okay, God, I've done what you've told me to do here. We're, we're ready to go. What, let's, let's do this. Let's... Let's get going. And, and throughout the day, the birds come, and he has to drive them away. And then finally, the sun is getting low. And uh, it says in verse number 12, A deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and a horror, <coughs> and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, again, this is God speaking, Know of a what? What was the next word there? Know of a what? Surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land this is, that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. <coughs> and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, in the iniquity of the Amorites, 
uh, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. That's a very important thing. And the same day the Lord made a what? Covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, <coughs> the river Euphrates. It's interesting to me, as, as Abraham is in this deep sleep, God is making a covenant with Abraham. Now understand, the penalty for breaking covenant oftentimes is death. In other words, they would say, Let what has happened to this sacrifice happen to me if I break covenant. And God understands and knows that Abraham cannot keep covenant without breaking it. Certainly, Abraham was not perfect, was he? Any more than you and I are perfect. And so God did not allow Abraham to do what was called the covenant walk. And uh, the covenant, the Old Testament covenant, they would lay the two halves out. The parties would stand at either end and they would begin their walk uh, to the center, they would meet in the middle of the sacrifice. They would stand in the pool of blood that was pooling there. And in the center of the covenant, they would begin to give the blessings or the promises, and they would also give the penalties or the curses of the covenant. And they would say, here's what we're going to do. This is what we're promising or covenanting together we're going to do. And if we break covenant, this is what will happen. Sometimes it was death. Many times it was death. Sometimes they may come up with something a little different than that, uh, in a, maybe some, some smaller form of a covenant of uh, something maybe where it wasn't as significant perhaps. But most of the time, by the time you got to the point of making a covenant with somebody, it was a serious enough matter that you just weren't going to break it, period. You just were not. While they stand there, they give the blessings and the cursings of the covenant in between the two pieces of the, of the sacrifice, Several things would take place oftentimes. Now, they did not, all of these things did not happen in every covenant, but throughout the course of studying of the covenants of the Old Testament, all of these things happen at one time or another in a covenant ceremony. Uh, they would uh, take and cut the palm or the wrist, and they would intermingle their blood, meaning that we are now one blood. Our blood is now intermingled. We, we have the same blood. We are the same person. We're, we're no longer two individuals. We now are becoming one. <clears throat> While they're standing there, they would exchange their coats, their weapons belts, and their weapon. And in doing that, they were saying, everything that I own now is yours. And uh, basically, each of them were saying, you can have all of my assets, and I will take on all of your liabilities. And each of them were saying that to the other. Ah. Uh, then they would get to the weapons belts and that was a show of their strength and they were saying I will give you all of my strengths and I will take all of your weaknesses and then they would give the weapons belts and say I will defend you and I will fight for you your battles once that was done they would go and take some of the ash from either burning of the sacrifice or sometimes the dust that was in there at the bottom of the pool of blood. They would rub it into the cuts, and in doing so, they would make an indelible mark like a tattoo or a mark that would never leave. And from that day on, a man that had cut the covenant was known as a covenant man. And they could simply hold the hand up or they could hold the wrist up, and people could see that they were a covenant man. 
It was said of uh, Sir Henry Stanley when he found Dr. Livingston in the heart of Africa that he had cut the covenant with the tribes in Africa, over 50 different tribes he had cut the covenant with. And he could walk through any, any tribe in Africa, and all he had to do was hold his arm up and see all the cuttings on his arm, and not a tribe would touch him because they knew that if they did, every one of those tribes would come after them until they died. This is how serious, and I'm talking about the unreached tribes in Africa still understood the sanctity of covenant. When Americans, when the, uh, the, the Europeans came to America and began to make treaties with the Native American Indians here, many of them understood what it was uh, to make covenant. They didn't call it that, but the Native American Indians would cut the wrist and the, the hands and make blood brothers with someone. They would exchange gifts. They would exchange names. So they would exchange uh, these uh, belts and the coats and the, uh, the weapons, and then they would exchange their names. They would give each other their names. And uh, once that was done, they would finish the uh, covenant walk, and they would then uh, have a covenant meal. And they would feed one another the covenant meal or give, uh, serve each other the covenant meal. And they would usually take the sacrifice that was made and roast it and, and eat on that and feast upon that. And the covenant meal was something that was to be done occasionally from time to time uh, to be a reminder of the covenant. Boy, I'll tell you, when we think through all of these things that the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, when He walked down Calvary's hill or to Golgotha carrying the cross and later stumbled and began to have someone else carry it for him. He was, in essence, telling the Father, Lord, I'm walking the covenant walk in their place, doing it for them as their substitute. He, uh, he would, uh, as he hung on the cross, be suspended between heaven and earth, and Christ was the only one in history that could be both the sacrifice and the intermediate of the uh, on our behalf of the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice between us and God. And uh, He uh, gives us, uh, it's interesting to me when the Bible talks about, or some of the historical accounts of Old Testament covenant talks about exchanging the robes. And isn't it wonderful that the Bible speaks of the fact that Christ robed Himself in flesh. He took our robe upon Him and He gives us a robe of righteousness. What an amazing thought. They would exchange the weapons belts saying, I will give you all of my strength and I will take all of your weaknesses. And I'm reminded of Paul as he besought the Lord three different times. For the thorn of the flesh, the messenger of Satan that buffeted him to be taken away. And God told him, he said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Well, I'll tell you what, I am so thankful that I have a God that gives me His strength and He takes over all of my weaknesses. Isn't that a wonderful thing? 
they would exchange weapons, in essence saying, I will fight your battles for you. Aren't you glad that we have a God who says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your soul. Oh, I'm thankful that we have a God that gives us a way of escape. He's able to take those and quench those fiery darts of the wicked one. He's the one able to give us uh, our fort. He's our fortress and our high tower. He's able to give us victory. And the greatest battle that you and I had to fight was the battle of death and hell, and we could not defeat it. <laughs> and Jesus on Calvary said, Greg, I'll fight that battle for you. And he went down to hell, and the Bible says he conquered it. He came up victorious over death and hell in the grave. And he holds the keys. And oh, I'm so thankful that he fights my battles for me. They would exchange names. And man, I'll tell you, I'm thankful that I can call myself a Christian. I, I, am, I am one of His. I belong to Him. I don't look at that as something that is degrading. It was intended that way when they began to call Christians first. The Bible says at Antioch, and they said it as a derogatory term, but it was one of the greatest compliments they could give. Little Christs, there are the Christ ones. I'm thankful that Christ gives us His name. He allows us to say, I am His. I belong to Him. I belong to the King. He has bought me with the price. And I'm thankful that we have the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was reading somebody uh, just recently on the, the old Hebrew names, all the Jehovah names of God, Jehovah Nissi and Jehovah Jireh and uh, so many of these different names. The Lord my banner, the Lord my uh, strength. Uh, the Lord my provider, and going on and on and on through all these names of God. And I'm thankful that all of those things that He does and that those names signify are at our disposal. Where they all belong to us. They all are part of what we can have. And then came the time for the Lord to uh, institute this new covenant that was spoken of in the New Testament. And uh, he goes to the garden of Gethsemane. He prays to his father, If there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, <clears throat> not my will, but thy will be done. He was saying, Lord, even to the point of death, or Father, even to the point of death, I'm willing to stand in place of Greg. In Hebrews chapter 15, as Abraham is in this deep sleep, God does not let Abraham pass through the sacrifice. We find that God passes through it, and Jesus passes through it, I believe, is what this represents when it talks about the smoking furnace. That He was there going through it on our behalf. Now, some people may disagree with me on that, and that's fine. You're, it, it certainly doesn't say that specifically, but it's interesting to note that in Hebrews it tells us very clearly that He is the surety. He's the guarantor. He's the one that has taken upon Him the responsibility of keeping covenant with God because He knew that we could not. In Jeremiah uh, chapter number 31, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 31. And, uh, oh, got the 32. Sorry about that. Give me just a minute. Let's look in verse number 31. 
Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. God gives us the promise even in the Old Testament, gives to Israel the promise in the Old Testament, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's not going to be the one that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, when you had the Passover and represented all of the things that God would do down the road as the Messiah would come and fill all of the roles of the Passover. He says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. When we come to the New Testament, and the Lord Jesus Christ meets with... um, the disciples in the upper room. And they, uh, they were there eating of the, the bread, and the Bible says drinking of the wine. The Bible says that He took the bread and He broke it and He gave to them, saying, This is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and He said, the Bible says that He gave that to them also said, this is my blood of the New Testament. This is the blood that was shed for the, the new covenant, the one that was spilled. And this is the establishing of this new covenant. But he says this, he says, I will not eat it until I eat it with you uh, in, the king, in the new kingdom. And when we get to heaven one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we'll see the completion of the covenant meal taking place. One of the neat things that I think about this whole covenant meal idea is the idea that from time to time the people that were involved in the covenant were to partake of the same meal. They were to feed each other, give to each other the the elements of the meal so that they could remember the covenant that was made. And Jesus, in the upper room with His disciples that night, gave them the bread and gave them the cup. And he said, "This do as often as you, or as often as you do, this do in remembrance of me." What was he saying? He's saying, "Do this in remembrance of what I have done on Calvary, the, the covenant that is new, that is made." There's an awful lot that I love reading about historically and and in the Old Testament that pictures so clearly the things that God has done for us in the New Testament. We haven't had time today to go into the book of Hebrews. I was hoping to have some time, and we may dwell upon that a little bit more next week as we finish up chapter 20 of Exodus. Of Christ being the surety and all that that represents. There's three or four chapters there that just are amazing to think about when you feel, when you understand what God has done for each of us through this thing of the new covenant. And uh, I want us to uh, be rejoicing today, be encouraged today. That we are saved, and not only are we saved, but we are eternally saved. Because we did not walk the covenant walk. We did not pay the price of the covenant. We had our Savior stand in our place as our, as our representative. And He took the blessings and the cursings of the new covenant on His own account, on His own body. And gives it to us freely. He's our surety. God knew that we could never keep covenant with Him. 
but our Savior can. And every time we break covenant with God, even though we break fellowship with Him, we're eternally secure because the Savior steps forward and says, already paid the price for the broken covenant. I already gave my life. And I've done it on His behalf. And boy, I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but that makes me excited to be saved today. What a wonderful thought. And uh, Lord willing, we'll take a few minutes in Hebrews next week and kind of finish that up. And then we'll move on to Exodus chapter 21. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed and be back here in about 15 minutes. Father, we're so thankful for the blessings that you give to us. We've not taken a, a lengthy time to deal with the subject. It could go so much further than it even has. But we've done our best today to try to illustrate from Scripture and to, to give the historical representations of what you've done for us. I pray that you would help us to fully understand these things, that we would rejoice in them, that it would be something that would stir and encourage our hearts as we think of these things. The things that you gave us on earth here to picture, to illustrate all that you do for us in heaven, all that you have done for us. Dismiss us with your blessings. We pray that you'll bless the service to follow and encourage and speak to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll be back in about 15 minutes.